I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea on what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition. Sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Hey, hey, Dr. Fiona Lovely here, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast, and I hope you're feeling the tidal wave of women and women's experts, women's health experts coming forward and saying, we want a different experience at menopause. Yes, yes, this is why we're here. This is why we're doing this. This is why we keep going. So. I'm really excited to bring to you another interview today. Um, In this time, I had the pleasure of recently having a discussion with Dr. Jennifer Rowlands, a holistic integrative gynecologist who runs a virtual medicine practice. You can find her at wellwomanmd.com. And she and I came together to discuss the topic of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this is a really important subject for women to be aware of because the incidence of this is on the rise. Um, It is the increase in the androgen hormones, which is testosterone, DHEA, etc. And a lot of it, a lot of discussion around PCOS is just not particularly well informed. So if you think you have polycystic ovary syndrome, if you have been told that you have polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, then there's information here for you for sure. But for those of you that are listening that are not sure, I'll tell you that Dr. Jennifer and I had a ball talking about women's health in general, and we covered a lot of topics that are helpful to women across the board. So even if you're not fully menopausal, even if you are not sure if you're PCOS or you know you're not PCOS, listen in. We talk about some really important subjects. So onwards with the interview, but first a moment for our sponsor. I would like to acknowledge our sponsor, Athletic Greens, which is now called AG1. This is a vitamin, mineral, and probiotic greens drink. It helps me boost my energy and gives me the nutrients I need in case I don't get what I want and need in my diet for the day. It tastes great, and it has mushrooms and digestive enzymes and adaptogens for adrenal health. I take it once a day. It's truly an all-in-one supplement. If you would like to try AG, please visit athleticgreens.com slash Fiona Lovely, and they'll send you a year's supply of liquid vitamin D3 with K2 and five free travel packs, which come in mighty handy for getting your AG on the go. Thanks, Athletic Greens, for sponsoring the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. Okay. Hello, everybody. Dr. Fiona Lovely. This is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Rollins, who is a holistic, integrative gynecologist. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rollins. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Yes, me too. Me too. So what does that mean? And a holistic, integrative gynecologist. Break that down. So I'm a board certified OBGYN. So I did an OBGYN residency, just like a typical traditional uh, OBGYN. 
And then I did two-year integrative medicine fellowship at Andrew Weil. And so what it is, is that you get you essentially more tools in your toolbox as an OBGYN. So I'm trained in nutrition, lifestyle medicine, acupuncture, herbal medicine, you know, just a bigger, broader scope so that I can help patients by having different tools in my toolbox um, to essentially, you know, whatever it is from a women's health perspective that they need help with. Well, and I, I hear you say that. And to me, those are all the tenants of really good healthcare. So shouldn't we all be looking for an integrative practitioner, a functional medicine or integrative practitioner is what I tell people, then you're going to get the whole picture of wellness. So I love to hear that. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you're not going to get a disagreement with me. I of course <laughs> think it's wonderful. I mean, because there are patients who really, you know, prescriptions are not the right answer for them, or they don't feel like they have it. They really need a little bit more time in the office to really dive into what's going on with their hormones. And so they need maybe an approach that involves exercise or herbs or meditation or other sort of options, not just sort of prescriptions. I feel like in the, the way you kind of break it down is conventional medicine is very much like symptom driven. So here's your symptom, here's your med, here's your illness diagnosed, here's your med. But really integrative and functional medicine is about whole body approach. Why do you have anxiety, irregular periods, bloating, you know, what is the commonality between all of these things going on in your body? Let's look at your whole body as opposed to anxiety. Here's an anxiety medicine, irregular periods, here's a birth control pill, you know, like trying to sort of break those down into pieces as opposed to looking at the whole body. That's the difference between integrative and traditional. Well, and health uh, is not linear. Yep. Right. And we know that because that's how we practice our medicine. Um, but uh, there is, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're realizing as a society that there is a knowledge gap for women in perimenopause and menopause between what your general practitioners and even some gynecologists know um, and and what needs to be um, discussed, what areas need to be looked at for a woman in this perimenopause transition. Yeah, I, you know, I saw a patient yesterday who said to me, this sometimes you just hear phrases over and over and over again with patients that you see and she said to me I was just not told this was going to happen to me I was not told this was going to happen to me my mom didn't tell me my doctor didn't tell me no one told me that this was going to happen to me perimenopause right we focus a lot some women know okay menopause your period stop this is sort of the transition that happens but really nobody talks about perimenopause that 10 years leading up to menopause and the roller coaster of things that can happen to you during that time frame can be all over the place. In fact, I just read this um, chapter in this Integrated Women's Health book this morning that said 150 symptoms associated with perimenopause. Yeah. 150 yeah. symptoms. Like no one would say, you know, oh yeah, like that's this is peri most women wouldn't identify that all the stuff that they're going through has to do with perimenopause, but it likely is. If you're anywhere from 35 to 50, it likely is related to it. Absolutely. That in that egress of hormones does affect a lot of systems. And, you know, women have generally just been mismanaged in terms of uh, any sort of symptom that pops up from about 35 until it gets to be more obvious that maybe it's a, a, a menopausal thing when we start to skip periods and that sort of thing. But the truth is, that's like right at the end of perimenopause. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of years before that. Yeah. I mean, some people break perimenopause into stages, right? You know, you can have stages of sort of these early changes that happen to you because you're lowering progesterone levels. And then really when you get close to truly menopause, I mean, you have lowering of both estrogen and progesterone levels. So it's a very different um, beast, really, like the way that you feel early on than when right before you end your cycles. And those things can contribute to all kinds of different symptoms that people have. Well, and what we are doing right now is sharing the information that will help women bridge that gap to know what questions to ask of their healthcare provider. And also it's going to raise the standard, I believe, of what we as healthcare providers are uh, able to talk to our people about. I mean, you and I are good. We've done the studying, but you know, there's again, that knowledge gap. So we want to try to fill that gap as best we can. So that's what we do with our, with our podcasts, I believe. Anyways, you have a specialty in polycystic ovary syndrome, otherwise known as PCOS. Is that correct? Yes, yes. 
Oh my goodness. Please share your story. Well, I have a personal story with PCOS and um, well now in perimenopause, but I had a difficult time getting pregnant about 13 years ago. And even my own doctor, I'm an OBGYN, even my own OBGYN kind of said, well, there's no way you have PCOS because you're thin. Like it's not possible. You know, typically people are heavy. And so I went about a year and a half without actually able to conceive. And finally I did my own labs <laughs> and realized I had a testosterone level of 80, which is kind of a problem. Yeah. And my thyroid antibodies were in the thousands. And so realizing that I had Hashimoto's and PCOS both, which were contributing to my infertility and ultimately had to, you know, work on reversing those in order to get pregnant um, ultimately. But what I've realized over the 13 years that I've had PCOS is that it's so much more than just a reproductive problem. It really is a metabolic problem with GYN implications, but it has implications in all of your body. It has implications on your immune system, has implications on your, uh, you know, meta metabolism, has implications on everywhere, even affects your thyroid. There are, uh, you know, up to 40% of people have Hashimoto's as well as PCOS. So it's really important to understand that it's more than just a GYN problem. It's certainly much more of a metabolic issue. So what are the common signs of PCOS? So the two big sort of factors related to the diagnosis of PCOS is that you have irregular cycles, right? Because you have an ovulation, lack of ovulation. So people typically have irregular cycles and evidence of higher levels of androgens. And that can either be by blood work, like me, like I mentioned, the testosterone levels or by physical signs. So they can have severe acne, like cystic acne, hair growth that may be on the abdomen or uh, you know, along the chin or the face. Um, people can have darker patches along their neck for higher, you know, uh, signs of insulin resistance issues, but you really have to have those two big components, which is irregular cycles and androgen levels that are elevated. So what's actually happening when someone has PCOS? Yeah, this is kind of controversial about like what starts it, right? What is, what happens? Why does someone who's maybe destined to have PCOS develop PCOS? There's actually some good, um, People are looking at genes right now to find out, like, you know, do we have, are there people who have PCOS genes and essentially they're turned on in your lifetime? And there's some people that I even are looking at in fetal uh, imp implications. Like if someone has PCOS and they have higher levels of androgen, maybe there's essentially sort of um, determining what their female fetus will eventually have. So there's even some information looking at sort of controlling women's symptoms in pregnancy and trying to help them lower their androgen levels. So hopefully their child will not sort of be destined to have PCOS, which I think is fascinating. Sort of the Absolutely. exposure for androgen levels. Um, and then, but, but what we know is that, you know, there's clearly an insulin resistance issue for most PCOS patients. And so whether or not it's the fact that uh, insulin resistance you know, causes this higher androgen level and inflammation that ultimately leads to this cascade of PCOS symptoms? Or is it the fact that maybe there's some dysfunction in the way that estrogen and testosterone, these ratios, and that the androgen levels cause the insulin resistance, which causes the inflammation. So no one really knows the chicken or the egg phenomenon, which is the thing that starts someone down the cascade. But we do know that most women with PCOS have insulin resistance and certainly if you look at some of the, um, you know, sex hormone levels, you can see you can the testosterone and estrogen ratios are off. So either way, whichever is sort of the starter of it, we know some women are sort of um, destined to, to have PCOS. You know, they have family history of a lot of metabolic syndrome. They may have had mothers or sisters with PCOS. And so you sort of see that running in families. Fascinating. So you mentioned both uh, insulin resistance and inflammation, and those two things show up time and time again when we're talking about chronic diseases that we're attempting to prevent as we as we age. So being able to get the diagnosis of PCOS and have the control of it. Um, this is kind of a, a one-off thought I have, but I know some of these um, GLP medications are really uh, very exciting right now. Lots of people talking about them. And for those listening that don't know what I mean, I'm talking about the Ozempic, the Wegovi, the uh, Manjaro, which is yet not yet available in Canada, the Manjaro. Uh, it's coming. Apparently there's a supply issue, but there's lots of discussion about 
about these medications. And I know that I have several patients that have noticed with their, they may not yet be diabetic, but they may have the obesity piece and they're working on that. And which of course, these medications help with the A1C. So is there any connection here? Is there anybody using um, these medications for, uh, for someone with PCOS? for PCOS specifically, right? Actually, there is no FDA approved drug for PCOS. Like there's nothing that says this is a PCOS drug, right? We use a lot of diabetic drugs because um, we know that a lot of people have insulin resistance, if not really close to diabetes. But the GLP-1s, I've used them with my patients for obesity indication, right? The indication can be type 2 diabetes or um, obesity. So there are patients of mine who would like to lose weight and find that those medications are very effective for, for losing weight. And the other thing I've really found interesting about them is they've really helped with cravings. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big component of PCOS symptoms is cravings. And this has to do with this sort of ghrelin leptin problem. And so I've, and these GLP ones are known to help with sort of that leptin resistance issue. So I do see that uh, women who are really struggling with weight loss and really um, who, who are obese, who have PCOS, it seems to be pretty effective. And I don't have a lot of patients that are in that category. So I'm not an expert in that particularly, but I do see the ones that I've um, used the GLP ones have worked really well. Interesting. And of course, bringing down insulin resistance, bringing down uh, inflammation that will help with a litany of things that are going on potentially the list of things we just talked about that are part of the perimenopause cascade. Yeah, so the things that are common with perimenopause and PCOS, right, is that insulin resistance goes up. I mean, there's even some uh, experts that quote one in two women in menopause have insulin resistance issues, right? Yeah. And we know PCOS patients do. So mm -hmm. you imagine a PCOS patient who doesn't do anything about the metabolic syndrome that happens will have problems in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, because they're already at higher risk of heart disease, mm -hmm. diabetes, you know, all kinds of sort of chronic illnesses, obesity. So if we don't do anything from that standpoint, then we're going to end up having that same problems where they have higher insulin resistance and inflammation. I find it interesting. A lot of this sort of anti-aging medicine is all going towards inflammaging, right? The concept yes. of all of these chronic bad diseases that we're trying to avoid Alzheimer's and, mm -hmm. um, you know, so many more we're trying to, is all related to sort of our insulin resistance and inflammation picture. So for sure, it's very, very important for women who have PCOS and women who have perimenopause both to be focusing on their metabolic profile. In fact, I constantly talk about this on my IG lives or like on my podcast, like every single woman who is like 35 and over should be getting blood work for metabolic issues. They need to be yes. evaluating inflammation. They need to be evaluating fasting insulin. They need to, you know, they need a bigger picture of their metabolic profile. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. Looking at the inflammatory processes is, is a really important piece for prevention of whether it's cancer, certainly diabetes. Um, and this is what I find in the office is that um, when, I when I speak about blood sugar to patients, they think, oh, no, 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 doc, I'm not diabetic. Oh, no, this is relevant for everybody, every single one of us, because it turns out that this, the what's happening with the blood sugar, what's happening with the insulin, and whether it's resistant or not, whether the body's resistant to it or not, is a big factor in whether or not we have an increased risk for Alzheimer's or heart disease or cancer or diabetes or whatever. So it's it, there's a whole uh, education that has to go with it or re-education. And, and again, it's fun to be part of the the um, healthcare providers that are the spear of the of the arrow, anyways, uh, for this. Yeah, and I love CGMs. I use them for so many perimenopause women because it's shocking how yeah. your body changes with your blood glucose regulation. Even if you're someone who's healthy and you eat well and you, you know, you are normal body weight, it, you will find so much good data that you realize some foods just do not agree with you as you go through perimenopause and menopause. And yes. some exercise doesn't agree with you and some, you know, mind body options. Don't. So I found it fascinating when I did my CGM for a month, I was shocked at some of the things that I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to have no problem. Like I had an orange and my blood glucose level went to 180. Wow. Every time I ate an orange in that month, I would always have a huge spike up with um, my blood glucose and it would take a very long time to come down. In fact, I actually had a 
piece of chocolate with peanut butter, not, not nearly close to that same thing that happened to me with an orange. And I noticed that I did eight minutes of, when I had my blood glucose go up, I did eight minutes of breath work and it came nicely down to 90 from just yeah. eight minutes of breathing. So there's so many cool things you can find from those that'll tell you about your body and what can move the needle for you. So you can recognize, okay, you know, I may be going to a party and having a little bit more food than I'm typically used to. Like, this is what I can do to lower my blood glucose to sort of still keep in range. Oh, of course. And I, I like the fiber hack, which is if you know, you've got a food that spikes your blood sugar, but you want to consume it, or it's otherwise a healthy food for you with good nutrient, then have the fiber piece first, then consume the orange. But you would think the orange would have the fiber built in just like a sweet potato could do the same thing. Right. And so what Dr. Rollins is talking about is the continuous glucose monitor. That's the CGM that she mentioned. And what that's looking at is, and please correct me on this, uh, Dr. Jan, if, it, if there's any details that I've left out, but it measures the uh, blood glucose. Actually, it measures interstitial fluid in the moments after you've had your meals, done your exercise experience stress. This is a big one I see with the CGM is you'll notice that on days you're more stressed, your blood sugar is way more imbalanced in the 24 hours afterwards and especially right after the event. So I'd love to hear you speak about that. What have you seen? Yeah, exactly. So it measures real-time data of what your blood glucose <clears throat> is and it's all the time, right? So it's continuous glucose monitor and you can really use it to figure out, you know, see, when you wear a CGM, you want to sort of do the typical types of foods that you do, typical exercise, typical whatever it is, stress relief techniques, so that you can really get data on yourself and figure out, okay, what works for me whenever I eat? So sweet potato is a perfect example. I had a sweet potato, also really raised my blood sugar pretty high. The next day I had a sweet potato, but I put olive oil and I put microgreens on it. No problem. Fascinating. So, no, no issue. So I took that complex carb, right? And I put fat and I put greens, which is sort of that fiber area too. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that actually, so I'm like, okay, if I want a sweet potato next time, I need to make sure I have olive oil and greens with it because it'll, it'll mm -hmm. go better for me. You know, so there's sort of ways to do that to actually get good information and also to figure out what type of exercise might spike your blood sugar. You know, we always talk about overdoing it and, you know, causing too much cortisol issues and too much stress, but you really want to know, is it really doing that for you? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, I did a hot yoga class. I thought for sure hot yoga would be, cause you know, you feel like you're going to die in hot yoga. Yes, you do. <laughs> I'm like, this is the fight or flight situation going on this hot yoga class, but actually in the, my blood glucose literally was the most stable. It went doot, 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 90 straight across the way, did oh. not change, did not blip, did not do anything. And I was shocked. Oh. I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, why do I feel like I'm going to die actually? And yeah. I can determine the fact that I know that my eight minutes of breath work lowered my blood glucose. So I, I think the breath work for me, I mean, that's what hot yoga is so much of breath work yeah. for me, it moves the needle. So if I decide I eat something a little bit too much, I need to do some breath work to lower it. So it works for me and it's like, there's personalized. It's great. You there's know? so much power in that personalized information. So much because I think people get so scared, especially in perimenopause, when you start gaining weight and mm -hmm. you're like, oh my God, I can't eat anything. I can't do anything. Everything is going to cause, I can look at an Oreo and gain 10 pounds. Like, yes. you, know, you know, you feel like everything is just, and then, you know, then you look at your husband who's eating 10 Oreos and it's like losing five pounds and it makes you just yes. punch him. And yes. so, you know, not, not say anything from a personal experience, but, <laughs> but you know, like feeling like it's just, you know, understanding what works and what doesn't work. I can still eat my dark chocolate with peanut butter, which I love. It works fine for me, but I can't have, you know, an orange at 10 o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night because it doesn't, it clearly causes me problems. Because it will disrupt your sleep. When your blood sugar is that high, it will disrupt your sleep. This is one of those things that we, that I find I talk about a lot with my patients is that they go, you know, why do I have this sleep issues in, in uh, perimenopause? And I'm going, you need to look at your blood sugar and see what your blood sugar is doing. Cause there's a very good chance you're getting some kind of an imbalance that's causing you to wake in the night, which your adrenals, your brain will do to get you some fuel if it goes low. Right. But if it goes high, then we have a different issue. So again, that continuous glucose monitor can be so 
great for information that you can personalize, that you can change in your own lifestyle that make a big difference. Now, in Canada, um, which is where I am, although most of my listeners are in the States, I'll just talk about it briefly, how you get one of those CGMs here in Canada. And if you would talk about how you do it in the States, please. So here in Canada, your healthcare provider can uh, prescribe it for you if your insurance covers it. Some insurance do cover it, some don't. Um, You'll have to find that out. And if not, you can walk into any pharmacy and purchase them over the counter. And there's two different kinds. And so talk to your pharmacist about which kind would be better for you. One is more expensive and a more continuous and a true continuous glucose monitor, where the other one sort of every eight hours, you have to make sure you scan, et cetera, but it gives you the good information that you're looking for as well. That's less expensive. So that's how you get them. You can also have them prescribed. Like I said, that's how you get them here in Canada. How about the U.S.? Yeah, so in the U.S., there are companies that do direct-to-consumer, so someone can get them from that company. So two big ones. One is called Levels, um, and basically they have. it's very great because they have an app and they have a support, so they actually have like a whole built-in support system to help you interpret it and to um, figure out how you can change things or how you can basically use it to your advantage and health coaches. So that's one. Um, it's on the more expensive end. The lower end is called NutriSense which is also direct to consumer. So you don't need a prescription. You just go in there and and get it. They also have health coach support and they have like a program where a monthly membership that you can actually, um, you know, get support from health coaches on different dietary things you can mix up. Um, And then the third way is, is you can get a provider who prescribes it. And so I, sometimes it's covered by insurance. It depends, you know, insurance is so difficult in the U S with like, if you don't have diabetes, if you don't have this, but I, you know, if it doesn't get covered, I actually send them in. Um, weirdly enough, Walmart has a self-pay. It's actually cheaper than most insurances. So mine was 65 bucks for two weeks, which oh. is very cheap. And it's a continuous one. So you don't have to, it uploads constantly. You don't have to go resync it with your phone or anything like that. It's just a constant. It's called Freestyle Libre. Um, and it's the newer version, which is awesome. The cool thing about it is it'll actually give you alarms too. You could set alarms if you wanted to customize it and you can also um, do a couple little kind of adjustments on it in particular, but that's how you can mostly get them uh, through in the U.S. But it's really best to do this with a provider because what do you do with the data, right? They need to, if you're going to pay for the glucose monitor, in my mind, you really want to sort of like make changes as you go through and really kind of understand it as opposed to just sort of wear it just to wear it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But such powerful, powerful information. So to bring it back to PCOS, uh, have you used the CGM on some of your PCOS uh, patients? And what do you see? Yeah, I have. So I've, I've seen quite a few PCOS patients who say, you know, I've tried all the diets. I've done Noom. I've done Weight Watchers. I've done all these diets and nothing seems to work. Nothing's budging. And so those patients, I have found it incredibly valuable because understanding what you know, you want to love the foods that love you, right? You want to love the foods that love you back. And I really feel like there's so much value in understanding what foods work for you. And I think it also with patients understanding, you know, they do often, like you said, they're like, well, I'm not diabetic. Yeah. But insulin resistance um, is a huge range that happens for years prior to becoming diabetic. And so typically doctors will check hemoglobin A1C, but that's really a pre-diabetic range. You have that whole level before that where people are having blood glucose dysregulation, they're having ups and downs and all over the place. And so you want to catch people in that stage and then also the pre-diabetes stage. And these CGMs can be really valuable because someone can go, man, my resting, you know, doing nothing, waking up blood glucose levels 110. And I'm going to tell you that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then you eat something and it spikes 50 points. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it takes three hours for it to come back down to 110. That's mm-hmm. a problem. So you mm-hmm. can, I, it, it almost like for me helps patients to go, oh, okay. Even though my doctor says my glucose on my uh, comprehensive metabolic panel is normal and my hemoglobin A1C is fine, I do have a problem. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's valuable to understand that there, you know, where you can change these things that you have the control to change it. You have the mm-hmm. control to figure out what's going to work for you. Because in, in tradi- conventional medicine, like I said, hemoglobin A1C, they say, okay, you're diabetic or you're not, but that's not really giving you these, this whole range of pre-diabetic state that people with PCOS really have for a very long time before they become diabetic. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and I, I feel like I need to address this because I can hear some of my listeners going, oh, I don't want some other monitoring that means I'm going to be deprived of something, especially in an era where a lot of us use food for comfort. And what I would like to say about that is it's not so much about deprivation. It's about when you eat and how you eat it. So it's a timing thing, but it's also, as Dr. Jen said, it's it's making sure she has her microgreens and olive oil with her sweet potato, which means that she's absorbing the nutrient of her food, which is otherwise healthy, much better, much better. So it's empowering. Anti-diet person. I just don't think diets work. I've worked with women for 15 years. I can tell you if someone tells me you can't have chocolate, the only thing I'm gonna think about is chocolate the entire time. Yeah. So it doesn't work, but that's not it's not about taking away. The CGM is not about taking it away. It's about figuring out which foods like that love you, right? Like, I mean, me and chocolate and peanut butter went great. I'm I'm like for the win. I'm gonna eat chocolate and peanut butter. I'm I'm happy with that plan. And there's a lot of things that you realize, like, you know, if I'm going to eat dessert and have cake, it works better for me to have it like in the morning or the early afternoon doesn't work what way for me in the afternoon. So you can kind of figure these things out. You're not taking away stuff. You're trying to understand what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So it's not about a diet. It's not about restriction. I don't use C. I think what you said was really, really valuable because I don't use CGM in people who find data to be stressful. Mm-hmm. Those people that, that, you know, some patients who are like, you know, they have the aura ring and they have their Apple watch and they have all of these things that they're tracking their life constantly. And they feel very restricted and feel very stressed out about it. I don't want to give them a CGM. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. take them off of all this stuff and help them to sort of hear the internal cues that you have in your body, as opposed to the Apple watches cue. But most women I find that it's, it's pretty valuable for. Yes, absolutely. I think we're going to see just more and more and more of this. So uh, looking at how you eat um, and also what you eat, but it's not a matter of like, again, that deprivation. It's about eating it in a particular order, because when you eat it in a certain order, it doesn't have the blood sugar issue. And again, we want to avoid those spikes. The spikes happen and then the dips happen. And there's all kinds of mood issues that go along with that energy, fatigue, the whole thing. So again, it's not just about diabetes. I want everybody to hear that. Um, now my listeners do know, I talk about, uh, prevention, prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia a lot. It's a personal issue for me. So I speak about it often in the podcast and we do talk about the making sure the blood sugar is regulated. So this is just another tool that you can add to the functional medicine toolbox, if you will, that will really help you understand why your energy levels are the way they are, how your exercise affects you. And wouldn't it be nice though, if you got the hot yoga, uh, information and it, it caused the spike and you went, Oh, I never had to do it again. <laughs> hot yoga is not my job <laughs> I, sh- I should have done it with planks right <laughs> i'm like oh no more burpees and planks That's- exactly I-, I should have done it with that i didn't do that but yeah i i'm a i'm a big advocate too of sort of prevention of alzheimer's i have the apoe4 gene so i'm really on top of like paying attention to inflammation actually a great book is called the xx brain i don't know if you've read it or not oh yes and yes book about yes how- wonderful like i read that book and i was like Whoa, yeah. I have no idea. Like literally the structure of your brain changes in perimenopause and menopause. Like you are not oh, the yeah. same human being you were before. Nope. Like your structure changes. And I thought it was just unbelievably fascinating. Absolutely. Lisa Moscone. Yes. Yeah, great resource yeah. for people who are like, wait, what are you talking about? My brain is different from perimenopause, but yes, and menopause, but it's a fantastic book and really understanding how if we, if we knew that and we could teach women that they would make so much difference in sort of ultimately what, or this is her theory that ultimately this cha- transition causes you to be predisposed to Alzheimer's anyway. And then you can yeah. add like your genes and, yes. and, insulin resistance yep. and all the other things that can kind of push you over the edge. And it's all levers you can pull, right? It's all bits that you can you can you can tweak to reduce your chances. So it's a beautiful book. And if if you've not read uh, the Upgrade by Dr. Luann Brizendine, she is a friend of the podcast, and the book is amazing. And 
you will learn about the uh, the brain changes again that happen at, at the perimenopause transition. So uh, uh, anyways, so back to PCOS. We keep going off, but we're having a good time. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's fun to talk these things. So does PCOS stop at menopause? No. So, so I know that sort of the concept of sort of, uh, obviously your cycles stop, right? So some people say, I do hear that where people are like, you know, PCOS stops because you're, you don't have a regular cycle. So you don't make the definition. We've one first thing we have to remember that PCOS is syndrome, right? It's, it's not a, the, the, the concept of syndrome is that you've ruled everything else out and everything, at least constellation of symptoms puts you in this syndrome, <laughs> this sort of, you know, diagnosis of a PCOS syndrome. I don't believe it stops because all the metabolic side of this is still there. You're still predisposed to having diabetes, still predisposed to having heart disease. You're still predisposed to having bone issues. All these things will still occur. You're already, your, your genetics and what the decisions you've made for the 50 years prior have sort of set you up to what's going to happen to you in menopause. So, you know, does it end? I don't think so. I certainly believe that, you know, you have to continue to be very vigilant about controlling your blood sugars, lowering inflammation, being careful with your gut, all those things that drive PCOS in general in your reproductive years still are factors postmenopausal. Ooh, fascinating. Okay. I've got two questions for you. Okay. The first is, um, would it be true then that having had a hysterectomy, a complete hysterectomy with uh, uh, ovaries removed, which doesn't seem to happen very often anymore, um, if you have the ovaries removed, isn't the idea that the the multiple cysts that are forming on the ovaries that are making the androgens isn't if you have them removed, then is it does that resolve the problem? So not all sex hormones are made just in the ovaries, right? Remember, the adrenal gland contributes also to testosterone and peripheral tissues contribute to to sex hormones, right? So it's not just the ovaries. Now, uh, you know, by definition, polycystic ovaries, ovarian syndrome is sort of the well, when I mentioned that thing about sort of genetics, about someone being predisposed to the, the concept is that maybe the ovary, the receptors are not, have some issue. And so we don't, so someone with PCOS, maybe the, the estrogen, the recognition of the estrogen around isn't really normal, right? And so then they sort of have higher estrogen, higher testosterone, lower progesterone. They kind of have this dysfunction. Um, and there's also some data looking at that potentially there is sort of an aromatization issue too, but no one really knows why mm -hmm. someone has, why does someone have PCOS? So we just don't know. We don't know enough. And that's why I think the question of whether or not does it really end, I don't think so. But again, we just, this is all new. Like no one really understands why someone has higher androgens, higher insulin resistance. Like what is the issue? Yeah. <laughs> why do you get it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think as we discover more and more genes related to PCOS, mm -hmm. I think the answers will come because it'll be like, well, what is, does this gene say that my estrogen receptor is dysfunctional? Does this gene say that maybe my ability to convert testosterone to estrogen is an issue? Like, where is it in the cascade mm -hmm. that's causing the problem? Is It's true, I imagine, for you as it is for me. When I was learning functional medicine 25 years ago for the first time, we knew about PCOS, but it was very it was a very tight cluster of symptoms and you would see the person walking into your office and you'd be like, that's what PCOS looks like. And now we know that it is so much more than that. And I think, unfortunately, there's just a lot of knowledge that's sort of stuck in that old model. It says, well, you just, if you lost a few pounds, it could help. Uh, if you just exercise more, it could help. Um, you know, do you see that? Do you see that information coming into your office and saying, no, no, it's so much more than that. Can you talk about that a bit, please? Yeah. I mean, I think most patients that come to see me have been told that they need to eat less and exercise more. That the cure for, if you don't want to take a birth control pill, your only other option is to lose weight because most PCOS patients do have issues with weight. Um, there is lean PCOS or skinny PCOS, however definition you want to call it. Um, but most majority of the category is that people do have issues with weight. So I do see most patients who come in and go, you know, my doctor said, if I wanted to have a baby, I'm going to have to lose weight. Or, you know, I don't want to be on the pill. And he said, just lose weight. And that, and, and I think that we do a disservice to women by saying that because these women oftentimes have tried 
you know, to me, this as a physician saying to somebody else, just go lose weight, but don't give them any tools makes no sense. That's like this. I would never say to someone who comes in with terrible postpartum depression, just go deal with your depression, just go fix it. You know, like I have to give them tools. They came to see me for this issue and I'm just, it could be depression in general, but I'm just saying, like, I think that we don't give women tools. We kind of just say exercise more, eat less. And, and that's not the, the origin behind how to lose weight. It's not always just exercise or nutrition. Sometimes it's about changing someone's relationship with food. Sometimes it's about the dynamic that they may be trying to feed nine children and all they have at the end is Cheez-Its left over because they're feeding nine kids and they're trying to do their best. Or maybe they're having, they've never been, one patient I had, which really has stuck with me over the 15 years I've been a doctor was, I here I am thinking like, I'm going to tell her all about eating fish and greens and all, like I did this whole education thing. And then at the very end of my big, long speech, she was like, where, where do you buy fish? I was like, Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. I missed the boat on this one. I never even yeah. asked you if you've ever eaten fish or bought wow. fish or like types of fish. I mean, she's like, I've never had, she's 50, 45, I think 43, something like that. And she was like, I've never eaten fish or been to the fish aisle or like, I don't even know my mom when I was raised, we didn't do that. We just ate this, you know, a much, she had a Southern cuisine. So she's like, we just didn't eat a lot of that. So I had real, it was very eye opening to me to be like, mm -hmm. whoa, I never even asked you <laughs> like, yes. where you're at. Like what, you know, what is, what do you eat? What do you like to eat? What, when do you eat? Who are, what are the dynamics of you and you and food? Because a lot of times patients, when I really dive into like, what are the obstacles to sort of eating a little healthier? It can be all kinds of things. It can be feeding a lot of kids. It could be, I don't own a car to go to the grocery store or groceries are too expensive, or yes. maybe I've never been in the vegetable aisle. I don't really understand it. It can be so eye-opening when you actually ask the questions, but we don't do that in medicine. And I think that's really a disservice to women who we don't discuss with them, you know, go do this, but don't tell them how to do anything or help, help them to figure it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, there's a big, that's a part of a bigger conversation, right? Like a social discussion about, you know, how we, how we get our food, how we're educated about our food. And I remember years ago watching a show uh, that was uh, Jamie Oliver came to the United States and he found, yeah. you know, the, I think it was called food revolution, wasn't it? Yeah. And he went to the place in America that had the highest rate of obesity and said, you know, basically, he's just going to step in and educate people and show people how to cook healthy meals, etc. And he he did this demonstration with like grade three kids, and he would show them this, this, he had a whole tray of fruits and vegetables. And he would ask them what it was and where it came from. And it shocked me. It stays, it stayed to me to this day. And that's probably 12 years ago. He did that show maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it's worth watching it. If uh, whoever's listening, if you can find it, it's probably on YouTube, but um, like kids didn't know what a tomato was. They didn't know what a potato was like the most basic things, right? Um, they knew the sugary things like bananas and that sort of thing, but, and bananas are, are full of nutrient too, but they are sugary, <laughs> but they're delicious for kids. Right. For me, I spent time, uh, my mother always had a big garden in the city, and uh, my dad is a, was a um, farm kid, so we spent lots of time on my grandparents' farm. And my grandmother used to say to me, go get the potatoes for dinner. And she wasn't meaning go get them out of the cupboard. She meant go out to the dirt, dig them up from the ground. Yeah. So there's not a lot of people that have that. And so I think um, that is a really, really good point about you know, do people even know where to get great fish or, you know, what, what's happening in the, I mean, if you talk about a, a recipe that, that has kohlrabi, do people even know what that is? You know? So it's, um, there's a real education that, that needs to, to happen for, for some populations for sure. And um, so again, it's a social discussion. Yeah. And also just the concept of cooking. Some people are raised not having people who cook at home or don't feel comfortable cooking, or they just don't like cooking. So we, we, I do spend, I mean, in my practice, I pair with a nutritionist for a reason. And we really try to make it personal and say, you know, what is it that you don't like to do? What is it you like to eat? What don't, what don't you like to eat? What, you know, 
really can, let's find things to make small tweaks in what you're doing now. And slowly, slowly over time, you'll start appreciating these kind of types of foods or these new things. But you're trying to really not put people on diets, but really try to say, hey, okay, you eat yogurt every day. How about we add chia seeds? And how about we add, you know, like, let's just add these things to what you already like and see how it goes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can PCOS show up at perimenopause? I know I, I've been asked this question before. It's really difficult because people start getting irregular cycles, right? In perimenopause mm -hmm. and they start gaining weight mm -hmm. and they start having mood issues and they can have acne issues. All the things that pop up <laughs> sort of with PCOS, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the symptoms you typically see. And so I oftentimes will definitely do blood work to confirm that we truly have the right diagnosis, right? If, uh, it's unusual that someone would go say 40 till they're 45 and never had any issues until, you know, if they had normal cycles and then suddenly they're 45, they're probably perimenopausal, not mm -hmm. PCOS. But yeah. if they've had irregular cycles and maybe no one has ever diagnosed it and they've had infertility issues and they've had, you know, all these sort of sort of timeline of what makes sense. And, you know, you do your, their testosterone level and it's 60, then, you know, then you know that they probably were just an undiagnosed PCOS patient. And now they're, they're normal, I don't say normal, but their normal PCOS patients are just getting PCOS symptoms getting worse with perimenopause because certainly it worsens all those things. And so I, oft, I really want to make sure that the right diagnosis is given and they're not labeled PCOS just because they have irregular cycles, acne and weight gain, you know, <laughs> like the mm -hmm. mood issues, which typically mm -hmm. all, and thinning of your hair, right? Mm -hmm. All those are very common symptoms between both. <laughs> absolutely. They are. Absolutely. Yeah, issues, right? Yes. Yeah. That's a big one. So uh, we talk a lot about intermittent fasting on the podcast because it can be so helpful for so many people. How do you feel about it for PCOS? Is there a place for it? Yes. Love, 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 love intermittent fasting. So the data with intermittent fasting is really, really good in diabetics, right? Really good. Lots of good clinical trials, lots of good research on diabetics. There is a little bit of data on PCOS specific patients with intermittent fasting. There was a um, trial done, I want to say six or seven years ago, looking at um, intermittent fasting for weight loss for PCOS patients who did it for a 12 week period. Mm -hmm. of time. So for 12 weeks, they did once a week, 18, six, uh, intermittent fasting and definitely, definitely lost weight more than the placebo who did nothing. Who just went up their, their typical uh, way very much, uh, when it was combined with eating a Mediterranean style diet, it was even more effective. Mm -hmm. So definitely a, a tool I use, but I do often talk to patients about how comfortable that they are. Some patients just find it stressful. And so mm -hmm. I often just stick with that sort of time restricted eating where, you know, just 12 hours, just eat in a 12 hour window. Let's just work on that first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if they're very comfortable doing that, then we, then we sort of move on to intermittent fasting. Cause I find that those that just can't do a 12 hour window, it's super stressful to try to do 16. Yeah. I just find, find it too much. And you don't want to, in my mind, all this is about long-term sustainable changes. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to do it and you don't like it and you're not going to be happy doing it, don't do it. Cause it's exactly like for you for hot yoga, not good. If you don't want to no. do it. <laughs> for Zumba class, it ain't happening. <laughs> this girl is not going to be out there dancing in front of people. It's not going to happen. And I will do a Zumba class all day long. <laughs> yeah. I mean like, yeah. So you have to pick things that are going to be something that someone would want to do that they're yes. comfortable with. And I always talk about don't go from 12 hours to 16 hours. You need to slowly step it up, lean in to the 16 and certainly look for those signs of being irritable and hangry and shaky and, and try to use, um, there are a lot of different things you can use to sort of combat those symptoms as you're doing it, but do it knowing how this works as opposed to just sort of going up oh, today. I'm going to intermittent fast for 16 hours. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. You set yourself up for failure. <laughs> yeah. You're asking for trouble, not yeah. just with yourself, but the people who have to spend time around you too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For your own spouse's health, you probably yes. shouldn't just shoot to 16 hours. <laughs> you may not be, you may not wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 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 And, and that's a beautiful point. If someone you know, this is what I say to my, my patients. And I've said it on the podcast too, is listen for that inner knowing when an expert is sharing information 
and you hear 18 hours, no food, and you freak out a little bit, again, that's probably a sign it's going to be stressful for you. Now you can find a way, but you just start really slow and you're absolutely right. Like do that 12 hours, no eating. And that's so easy because you should be asleep for eight of those hours anyways. Um, so it's just a matter of just timing your last meal and timing your breakfast or coffee or whatever you're doing in the morning. But um, I love this concept, Dr. Jennifer, you're saying just don't do the interventions necessarily that cause you stress first, get feeling better. And then if there's something that's really, really important, but it gives you stress, you find a way to do it in a more gentle way if you have to do it at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 12 hour eating window is really good for everybody very important for perimenopause women, definitely important for PCOS patients, because again, those underlying root causes of inflammation and insulin resistance, both of which are, are really, you know, um, helpful for to do mm-hmm. the, the time restricted eating and then intermittent fasting. It's great if you can do it, but some people can't, mm-hmm. if you can't, that's okay. It's not, it's not a personal Absolutely. thing. It's just like, I did that fasting mimicking diet. Mm-hmm. I got to day three and a half and I was miserable. I yeah. had to stop. And I'm a pretty tough chick, but man, I was like going to eat the wall. I did not care. I was so hungry and so mean. And my kids were like, do you want a cracker? <laughs> do you want some food? I'm like, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> Fasting, mimicking diet. It's just not, it's, it's wonderful. It's a great tool. But for me, I just was, I was a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah. I I've certainly had those experiences too, in which case it's totally okay. Ladies, if you're listening, if that's you and you're doing something right now that somebody has recommended and it just doesn't feel right for God's sakes, just stop doing it. It's okay. It's totally okay. You've not failed. You just need to try it a different way and ask your people, ask your practitioners for tools. There's all kinds of options. There's no shortage of things we can do to be a little bit healthier uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Anyways, when we did, we were doing, I wanted to ask you this a little bit earlier, but before I forget, when we were doing our, our pre-roll chat, uh, you mentioned having time to speak to the partners about what's going on with your patients. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? I think it's really important. Yeah, I love, so I have a virtual medicine clinic, right? I see patients virtual and I love saying, just bring your partner in. Like, let's have a part of their visit. Why don't you come and bring your partner in? Because it's so important for the partner to be part of the changes and to be part of what's going on. And I often find when I explain what happens to someone in perimenopause, let's just pick perimenopause, for example, um, the partners are like, oh, really? Like her, you know, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, wanting to go like watch TV or go read a book or something is actually like physiologically happening to her or her being very moody this, this evening is, or edgy is related to her body changing. So it's really, really important to incorporate the partner in understanding what happens to someone's body because they're not going through the same change. There's, there's manopause. Yes, there is. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So I I find it not only great for the patient, but really great for the partner to go, oh, I didn't even know like this was going to happen or this and also anticipating what's coming. Right. A lot of times what happens is, is we have this conversation of, of explaining like, this is what happens in perimenopause and this is what's going to happen in menopause. So she may experience less libido. She may experience vaginal dryness. She may experience not any interest in doing the things you guys used to enjoy doing together. Like this, these are some of these things that may occur. So you can be mindful and pay attention to those things that those cues she may not be seeing and be supportive in her getting help and understanding what, you know, she needs to do to sort of feel better. And I also think it's really important to, for them too. like, if you have children, right, you're sort of teaching the, in general, sort of male partner for the female about these things that they're to to educate their daughters too about things that may be happening to their bodies and will happen later on. And this is all normal and all part of like what happens to our bodies as we age. And I think that's really important for everybody to sort of understand that. Cause if we want to change the education around perimenopause and menopause, we also have to teach our children 
and our spouses about this too, right? It can't just be us with all the secrets. Like we have to share the secrets with everybody. And I think it's important that that way that'll change sort of the stigma around it and people will understand because I don't know about you, but I certainly, my grandmother did not talk to me about these things. My grandmother was like, suck it up, buttercup. This yep. is what we all did. Y'all go through it. And, you know, and, and, you know, and of course, like, you know, 20 years or 10 years later, they're like, no, I went through it. Great. And then you talk to, <laughs> you talk to like your, your mother, right? Your mother's like, she was a mess. <laughs> like she was yelling at me and screaming and all this stuff. And, and so, you know, it's always hindsight 2020, like you, they don't remember that this challenges they may have gone through, but, and they had to go through it just kind of went through it without having to have help. And I think that we have to sort of change that narrative to where we're really educating our partners and our children about what happens with someone. Absolutely. There's a reason why this podcast is called Not Your Mother's Menopause, because, you know, I didn't hear a lot about it from my mother. And anything that other women shared was very like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's talking about that, especially not in public. So I feel like I'm kind of going the opposite direction. I'm like, let's just let it all hang out. Let's see all the parts, because this is a, this is just as important as puberty in a woman's lifetime, but we don't get the same airtime. But we're starting to. It's our generation that's changing all of this so uh which is beautiful and I'm totally here for it and when you talked about the partners I I could hear my husband in my head uh when I said to him recently on another not great night sleep he and I he sleeps like it like you know like a rock and I told him I'd been up since 3 30 and he actually asked the question you're never supposed to ask a perimenopausal woman <laughs> who hasn't slept which is why why would you do that? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> you think it was a choice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know. That's that happens with my husband too. He's like, well, what were you doing? Like, why were you up? I'm like, what do you mean? Why was I up? Why was <laughs> why were you sleeping? <laughs> why weren't you up with me? <laughs> exactly. I wish I was sleeping. I and if you ask me that again. <laughs> I know. I know. It's bad. It's, I, it is. It's, but it's really, really important that we change the narrative that it's openly discussed, openly talked about. Absolutely. And, you know, frankly, the, the, the husbands that have been part of conversations have been like, oh, yeah, my sister, blah, 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 blah. She probably mm -hmm. could use to go see somebody. I'm like, well, go tell her. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. Like, like be a part of it, you know. And I think that that's, you know, really, really important that they also understand that it's okay to ask for help, mm -hmm. which is something that I think comes up in the conversation a lot when I have a partner there is they're like, yeah, but is it okay if she gets on HRT or is it okay if she this? I'm like, if she needs it and she wants it, yes. Yes. And I try to remind him that, you know, happy wife, happy life, <laughs> that it's important that, you know, she's happy so that this affects you as well. You know, trying to understand that it's important that, you know, that they, if someone's saying to you, I need help, then they need help. Yeah. Love it. I love it. Such great information today. Thank you. I do have one last question for you. Okay. What could, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Um, what advice would I give my younger self? That you have to be your own advocate. That when you inside feel like something's wrong, something probably is wrong. And even if other people tell you, nope, your labs look normal, or nope, it's all part of aging, or nope, some people just don't get pregnant, then I, it, I would have told myself, no, man, like this is, it's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to find somebody who can help you. It's okay to figure out what's wrong. Because I went for a long time with infertility, even though I'm a doctor, I went for a long time with sort of other doctors telling me, no, no, it can't be it. No, no, you know, this and this and this. And I just was like, I don't know. I just don't, I mean, something's not right. I'm 32 years old. Why can't I have a baby? Like something's not right. And even once I was, had my children and I was sort of on Synthroid and on birth control, I still felt terrible because I never looked at it from a nutrition or lifestyle standpoint. I never did any of that until I really had to educate myself and say, you know, I need to figure out what is missing here. So don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to advocate for yourself, to take control, to be the CEO of your health and to really like say, you know, I gotta, I gotta feel better. I want to feel better. And I'm going to figure out who's going to help me feel better. 
That's wonderful advice. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. If uh, How can people find out more about you? So I have a website, uh, wellwoman, W-O-M-A-N-M-D.com. That's my website. And I also am on Instagram and also on TikTok, Holistic Gyno on TikTok. And then I have a podcast called Ignite Your Pow Her, where I interview other entrepreneurs, female entrepreneurs, and also just do solo episodes about all kinds of holistic women's health topics. I mean, I Amazing. have an eating, intuitive eating coach that I interviewed and fasting coach, like all kinds of just outside the box wellness. Excellent. Turns out probably all of those things are more inside the box than any of us thought, right? <laughs> I know. And I also have a quiz, just so I, I have a quiz where people who don't know what's really driving their PCOS can actually take the quiz and I'll give them some information about, you know, okay, it's, it could be inflammation, could be insulin resistance, could be gut health, and then some tips on sort of how to get started. So there are, there is some information about um, sort of understanding PCOS from a metabolic standpoint and taking that quiz. And then it ultimately also allows you to do the, I have a course that's a six week course that people can do self-guided to kind of help you start doing what I do with one-on-one patients. Amazing. Amazing. That, that kind of resource could be helpful and to so many people. So thank you for offering that. Thank you for the time today. I'm so grateful for all your sharings. I know they will help many, many women. Thank you. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your health care provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your healthcare provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.